Thank you, Chantel and Justin and Matthew and Peyton and Colin and Joshua and all the guys running sound behind the scenes and making that happen. I love, love, love to see God's people come together as God's people and respond to who God is and to what he has done. So good morning. My name is Eric Barton, and I bring you greetings from the second floor to all of those of you who are directly above my head on the third floor. Welcome to church. And it is that thing called the church, the gathered assembly, the fellowship that I want to spend some time talking about this morning. Perhaps you've had it called the the church, the assembly, the fellowship, the gathering, whatever you might want to talk about. I want to talk about that because summer often is the right time for us to sort of step back and go, wait a second, what are we doing again? We've done this thing called church for many, many decades. I don't really even know why we do it the way we do. So I want to speak directly to one particular aspect of church, in particular, the church gathered. I want to talk about communion. Some of you perhaps have heard it called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. Perhaps you've heard it called the Eucharist. Eucharist comes from the Greek term eucharisto, when Christ took bread and broke it, he gave thanks. And so Eucharist simply means the giving thanks. Perhaps it's been your experience when you visited a church that communion was so awkward and wonky and strange that you weren't even convinced they knew what communion was. And perhaps that happened in this building. I mean, it's it's possible. I can remember with great fondness and affection when we were at a different facility and location, we began to pass the elements and like horror of horrors, some of the vessels actually collided and spilled and then one of them never appeared again. It just, into sheer vapor, it was gone. I heard of a church that during COVID, they actually served to their people these little K-cups full of like Formica chips and 10W30 motor oil. I heard about that. I can't imagine desecrating the Lord's table with such heinous materials. But we do what we can. But perhaps it's been your experience to have some really rich, filling, festal times with communion as well. So I want to talk about what communion is, why we do it. And then at the end of our time together, I even want to talk about the very practical question of how often should we do it? Why do we do communion when we do? Why do we practice it the way that we do? By the way, we prefer the term for communion an ordinance, not a sacrament. Some of you come from different backgrounds and you come from different traditions. A sacrament has the idea that by the work performed of the worker, there's a Latin phrase, by the work performed of the worker, that special class of clergy person actually transfers grace from God directly to you. And it requires that special class of clergy person to do that. We don't hold to that biblically. And so the term we use for both communion and baptism is an ordinance that which was commanded or ordained by our Lord Jesus explicitly and expressly in Scripture. So I want to talk about communion this morning. It sets us up for our time. Our big idea is going to go like this. Communion is the feast of the faithful. Now, if you've grown up in an evangelical or Protestant church, I would assume that you don't think of communion as a feast. It's not even a snack. It's barely enough to mess up your breath. But communion is intended to be the feast of the faithful. We do it here at Bethel and all five of our campuses, essentially, the first Sunday of every month. And the biblical reason for that is 
We do it here at Bethel the first Sunday of every month, and the theological reason for that is? We do it the first Sunday of every month here at Bethel, and the reason for that is? Because that's what we did in 1982. Then we've just sort of stuck with it. So I want to explore that and get into it a little bit with you. I want to invite you to be open. If you immediately feel the doctrinal defense gates of your heart, soul, mind, life, and body like beginning to like weld shut, relax the hinge. Let that flop a little bit. We're not in any way talking about the finished work of Jesus. We are all going to agree on that. I find that when we talk about the frequency of communion, people get really, really nervous very emotional, and they instinctively reach for their sidearm. No, no. There's nothing expressed scripturally that's going to tell us that. We just want to look at it and perhaps find a theological reason for what we do. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians and to chapter 11. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a famous, famous passage for a lot of bad reasons Uh, we've got some wonderful passages in 1 Corinthians 11 about how all of you, and I saw none on the third floor either, all of you ladies are supposed to be wearing hats right now. And we just sort of go, eh, what are you going to do? And it's not like it's a cultural, societal thing. It's wear hats. Because, I mean, the angels are watching you, to which we all kind of go, that's a sermon for Mike Hall for another time. But we get through that piece in 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul actually starts to like applaud them. Like, hey, you guys have done a pretty good job dealing with the whole hats thing. You've done a pretty good job dealing with the whole should you eat meat sacrificed to idols. You've done a pretty good job dealing with the whole should you get baptized for the dead thing. What is that? Nobody knows. Don't ask. Or Mike at Bethelbible.com. He'll answer all your questions. (laughs) Finally, then, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. And Paul says, essentially, yeah, I got nothing good to say here. Like one of the most important things that you do, you're doing badly. Let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But as opposed to all the other stuff that you guys have been doing well, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. The very thing that is supposed to unite and draw you to one another, this great common denominator, you're actually using for division, which causes damage. And the heart of God is grieved, and the Son of God mourns. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together, and that word come together is sunerkomai. It's, it's sort of the New Testament expression for church assembly, for gathering. On the Lord's Day, on Sunday, different from the old covenant, which they all gathered on Saturday to proclaim in the synagogue the law of Moses. No, the Lord has come. He is risen. And so now the church comes together. They soon erkomai on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And so Paul says in verse 18, when you come together as a church, so this is not merely a, a bi-monthly life group. This is not a Bible study. This is not a BSF. This is the assembly of the believers in worship context on a Sunday morning. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. (laughs) You kind of have to be a total nerd, like I am. That is massive Pauline understatement. Of course he believes it. Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth with them, we know from Acts chapter 18. These people needed some antibiotics. They were gross. They invented ways of doing nasty stuff. And they had all different kinds of socioeconomic statuses, all different kinds of problems. 
It's a port city. It's full of sailors. It's also uh, the host of what's called the Isthmian Games, sort of the Corinth version of what Athens had, the Olympics. It was a rough and ready town. And as such, it had all different kinds of socioeconomic statuses and people from all walks of life. And remember, at that time in the Greco-Roman Empire, they didn't have weekends like we do. Sunday was a work day. That, that was the case until very recently. And so on Sundays when they came together, typically churches would meet either very, very early in the morning before everyone had to go off to work or in the evenings. And so perhaps there were all these wealthy families that showed up with a picnic basket and they had sardines and caviar and they had a nice bottle of Napa Cab and they had all kinds of spreads and they plopped down. And then there was just the tradesmen the guy who was going to go out and chisel or dig, and they showed up and they might have had just, you know, a half of a sandwich from the night before, maybe a half a box of Fruit Loops, who knows what. And then there were slaves that managed to somehow just grab a dry chunk of crust of bread from their master's pantry or something, and they were all coming together, either very early in the morning or perhaps even late in the evening. And Paul says, it's causing factions. Now, a little bit of technical stuff I need to work through here. Sometimes you will hear the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist referred to as the love feast, which the Romans thought, oh, yeah, we want to in on that deal. No, it's not what you think. The love feast in Greek is called the agape. It was where the church was supposed to periodically, every now and then, amass their resources and give charitably to those who were less fortunate. We see that in Acts chapter 2, and the church just sort of picks up on that and intermittently practices that from time to time. It is not prescribed in Scripture, but we know from very early church history, church documents from Ignatius of Syria and on and on and on, this is what they would do every now and then, just every so often. And over time, the church got a little bit lazy. I know it's hard for you to imagine. The church got a little bit lazy in its practice, and it sort of just mixed the agape and the Eucharist or the communion. And so they would just do both of them whenever they felt like it. And so it sort of become, became a, an area in which people were taking advantage of it, and it became an occurrence of shame and division and factions. And Paul is upset. We're going to keep going here. Now verse 19, four, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You're doing something God intends for good. You're doing evil with it, but God superintends it for good to reveal those who are actually sincere, those who are believers. Verse 20, when you, and here's this word again, come together, when you assemble, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Oh, you may be calling it that, but that isn't it. Because your heart set, your mindset, maybe even your body set is wrong. You call it the Lord's Supper, but that's not what you're doing. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. This is how we know that they were mixing the agape, the love feast, with the Lord's Supper. Second Peter talks about the love feast going horribly wrong. The book of Jude talks about the love feast going horribly wrong. Paul picks up on the same thing here in 1 Corinthians 11. They were mixing them out of efficiency. Now, let's just put them together and do them whenever we feel like it. Can you just imagine? So Paul says, no, 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 no. You have forgotten what communion is. It is the feast of the faithful. Now we're going to continue. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? The answer is yes, they do. Or do you despise the church of God? Don't you love getting asked a really complex question like that? Like any way you answer it, you're, you're wrong. Paul says, you do not have houses? Yes, we do. Okay, so then you must despise the church of God. Uh, neither of those things. 
Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? <laughs> no, I will not. Paul pulls no punch. You want me to give you an attaboy and a pat on the back? No, I wag my finger and say, shame, shame on your persons. Verse 23, really instructive. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord. I think that gets passed over too often. We know that the Lord's Supper is documented and detailed in Matthew chapter 26, in Mark chapter 14, and in Luke chapter 22, and it is alluded to in John chapter 6. All four gospel writers detail it, but Paul wasn't reading the gospels. Paul received this information about the Lord's Supper directly from the risen Lord Jesus as an apostle. We think that Paul spends as many as three, perhaps as many as 17 years getting instruction from Jesus when he's out in the deserts of Arabia and then later in Cilicia and Tarsus. A lot of time, probably three years with, with Jesus, Paul gets, and he's told this directly. And he uses the exact same language that Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22 use. In other words, Jesus reveals this to the disciples and he reveals it identically to Paul. What we can draw from that is that Jesus really wants this done. And Jesus really wants this to be understood and internalized and appropriated, we might say. That's very instructive for us. Jesus tells the original 12 disciples at the end of the last Passover, that old covenant is gone. This new covenant has come. I'm instituting this. I want you guys to get this and to do this. He tells Paul the same thing because Paul's going to go to the Gentiles. So verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. Now, there are a lot of denominations, a lot of different traditions that will say that what Jesus is about to say is the grounds for a doctrine called transubstantiation, that the bread literally becomes the actual visceral flesh of Jesus. But that is a grammatical impossibility, not to mention a theological, Christological impossibility. Because Jesus has a body. And for him to say, this is my body, would be categorically incorrect. Because his body was that which was holding the bread. So just logically, grammatically, syntactically, theologically, Christologically, that is impossible. The doctrine of transubstantiation is false. There I said it. Send all your questions. That again is mike at Bethelbible.com. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had Eucharisto, given thanks. The bread, what Jesus wants us to understand in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, later in John 6, here in 1 Corinthians 11, is representative, it resembles his active obedience. Every aspect of the living life of Jesus on earth in thought, word, and deed perfectly fulfilled the law, not just of Moses, but of God's righteousness. The bread is representative and reflective of Jesus's active obedience. The demands of the law are perfection. Jesus says, this is the completed scorecard signed in my blood, and I'm offering it to you freely. That's what Paul tells us. That's what all the gospel writers tell us. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this when you feel like it. No, no, no. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, do this as often as you come together and I matter to you. 
Do this as often as you assemble and you cherish me. Do this as often as you come together in worship. And it matters that there's no way you could ever accomplish active obedience according to the standards of the righteousness of God, but I give it to you. Just, just observe this as often as that matters to you. Because communion is the feast of the faithful. Verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. So Passover is over. Paul wants to be very clear in telling us Passover is over and it will not happen again. Passover is over, the supper is done, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant was about the blood of bulls and goats temporarily covering over sin until next time. But that was a faulty system. Jesus says, all the prophets looked forward to in Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 30 and Isaiah, they all looked forward to a new covenant. You guys, you guys, I've done it. It's here. It's not what you expected. It's going to be done in my blood because while the demand of the law is perfection, Jesus did it, the demand of the law is death for sin. And Jesus says, I'll pay that bill. Because the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. How often should you do it? As often as you're grateful that Jesus satisfied the wrath and the judgment of God. That's all. As soon as you come together as a church and you're thankful, you're prescient of mind and spirit that Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe because sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. They should write a song about that. Every time you're like really mindful of that, that's when we should observe it. Paul seems to be saying here. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Interesting. Taking communion together as an assembly is actually evangelistic. You see, the, the core of our confession, summed up in one word, is substitution. I'm guilty. I deserve death. He's innocent. He deserves life. He switches the cups. He's my substitute. And when we take communion together, invariably and inevitably, there will be someone in the room, either here or above, that is not a believer. We want them to see this is the thing that we've placed all of our weight on, the, do the notion, the doctrine of substitution, the innocent for the guilty. You proclaim the Lord's death. He was God. He became flesh. God died. Oh, but he's alive and he's coming again. That's what Paul says here in verse 26. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, i.e. he's alive and he's coming back. That is a proclamation that our past, present, and our future are secure, and we want those who are not believers to understand that. Verse 27, we have this paragraph on examination. I'm going to be very quick on this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, not that they're unworthy, because we're all unworthy, but does so in an unworthy manner flippantly, arrogantly, uh, unmindfully, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. You're handling this not with reverence, worship, and awe. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, interesting, without discerning the body, in this context, it's pretty clear Paul's talking about the us. If all we ever do in communion is navel gaze and think about how terrible we are, but, you know, God forgives me, we're missing the point. It's that great common denominator that this bread is for all of us together. 
If anyone drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. That might also be why we have just done it once a month in the past, because we just don't want a whole bunch of dead folks. That's bad for insurance. It's bad for media. We just, you know. This is why I take it that no, communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is not transubstantiation, nor is it consubstantiation, as some of my other friends will say. But it's also more than merely memorial. It's more than just a memory. Anything for which God says, if you do this wrong, you might die, that's more than just memorial. God gave us all sorts of of scripture and hymns and stories for us to memorize things. This is a more visceral, kinesthetic, tactile, experiential thing that we are supposed to internalize and appropriate. Verse 31, but if we've judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together, how often do these people in Corinth come together for assembly, for fellowship, for church? When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let them eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Cat or nine tails at the ready. You kind of get the impression. Now, to really understand what's going on here with Paul, we have to turn back a page or so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we get sort of the the instructive lens through which we can look to understand this passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verses 16 and 17. This is sort of the, uh, the ethos and the mood of how chapter 11 about communion is written. Chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The way communion is kind of supposed to go is a one cup kind of a thing that we all drink from the same source and the same origin. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, literally one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What the apostles, the gospel writers, really want is for people to come to the same source, to the same origin, and to feast on the same origin. These representative, reflective elements of the finished work of Jesus. But how can that be? Paul knew that the churches in Crete couldn't literally become uh, able to share the exact same loaf of bread with the churches in Rome. The churches of Southeast Asia can't share a loaf with the churches of South America. So there has to be this spiritual, mindful, intentional awareness and intentionality that says, when we do this, we are connecting with one another in this local church space, but we're also doing so with the church all over the world through space and time. This bread that we come together to feast on as the faithful, it is the same bread, spiritually speaking, in terms of impact and effect, as what they were doing a 1,000 years ago, as what they were doing 2,000 years ago. It unites us to the body of Christ. Those who are in Christ feast on Christ because communion is the feast of the faithful. Now, why does Paul make such a big deal about this? Why does the disciples, the gospel writers, make such a big deal about this? Very quickly, just to sort of geek out and show you how enormous this is, I'm going to invite you to turn with me back to Genesis chapter 3. We have the origins of communion way back in Genesis chapter 3. It's a familiar story. Way back in Genesis chapter 3. Why is communion such a big deal about eating? You probably know the story. Adam and Eve are in the garden. 
don't know how long they've been there, but they at least by this point know how to eat. And they've delighted themselves on the produce of the garden. They know how to eat. And in verses 6 and 7, we're told that the servant comes and has a conversation with Eve and says, hey, God's holding out on you. You think he's good? And yeah, he's pretty good-ish, but there's something better, and he's holding out on you. And so you know the tragic story, Genesis 3, 6 and 7. She reaches out her hand. She takes, and she eats, and she offers it to Adam, and he offers zero resistance. Now, please don't misunderstand. They've almost certainly eaten many, many, many meals. It's not the first time Eve actually opened her mouth and goes, what are these teeth things I have? What's a po- This is delicious. I think I'll swallow this. No, no. She knew how to eat. And a meal is just a mundane meal. Unless something changes about what you believe. A meal is just a mundane meal unless something changes about what you believe. In that instant... Eve is about to eat, and what she takes into herself, what she internalizes and appropriates, is that she believes Satan, the serpent, more than God. She believes that God is not 100% trustworthy. He's holding out. I have a fear of missing out, and God's responsible. And so she eats. She takes into herself, now what is sin? And what emerges from that is a cosmic calamity thousands and thousands of years in the making. The relationship between God and man is fractured. The relationship between people is now fractured. They're separate. They're relationally dead. They now have to cover themselves. The relationship between man and creation is fractured. It is broken. And it almost gets much, much worse. But watch Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 22. God averts a complete crisis. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, not the triune Godhead, but a spirit being who understands right and wrong, good and evil, wisdom and folly. This this person, this human, now is like one of us. Behold, the man has become like one of us in his knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then the text goes on to say that he places at the entrance to the garden as he ushers Adam and Eve out of the garden, he places two cherubim with flaming swords saying, the way is shut. You shall not pass. Lest they eat and live forever. And that expression is not used again in your Bible for thousands and thousands of years and chapters and chapters until we get to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're going to land the plane with this. Gospel of John, please turn with me to chapter 6. You need to see this. We talked about this, oh, a couple of years ago when we walked through the Gospel of John. I'm sure you remember this, but we're going, to re- we're going to revisit it anyway. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 51. You have to kind of know, all four gospel writers share the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Why? Well, because it's just a really cool miracle, and it was really big. No! It is a biblical nuclear bomb when Jesus does that. He's undoing, he's recapitulating the error that took place in Genesis 3. Not just for Jews. We'll find out later. He also does it for Gentiles. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 51. Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Boom. First time that's been said since Genesis 3, verse 22. Eat and live forever. 
And it's Jesus. He is the tree of life. He is the bread of life. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. My actual epidermis? No, thank you. Of course not. His act of obedience, viscerally, physically personified in his life in the world. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? See, it's hard, hard doctrine to understand. Jesus is not speaking in parable. He's just speaking in very graphic symbology. But Jesus is no more his own flesh than he's also an actual literal door on a hinge in Revelation 3. I am the door. Come to me and knock. Hey, Jesus. No, of course not. It's a very intense physical symbol. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And the disciples are like, oh, this got weird. Like, like I'm so sorry I invited you. Have some dip. We'll see you next year. No, no, no. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me and my work, he also will live because of me. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Eat and live forever. This is why communion is such a humongous deal. Eat and live forever because communion is the feast of the faithful. So let me just give in summary and in closing three very quick implications as we think together about communion, the feast of the faithful. Number one goes like this. The church is the new covenant community of the spirit. People talk all the time, what is the church? Well, the church is that place where they argue about carpet. The church is that place where they do communion. The church is that place that baptizes. No, 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 no. All of those things are what the church does. What the church is by essence and nature is the new covenant community of the indwelling spirit. Now, if that's true, and it is, that must mean something practically. One of the largest contrasts from the Old Testament to the New Testament is the institution of the new covenant above and beyond the now completed old covenant. It's over. Those who want to live according to the law, that's over. It is now living according to grace by faith. That's what Jesus came to do, and he did it. The old covenant had as its right of initiation circumcision and its commemorative uh, Reminder, Passover annually. So the old covenant had circumcision as its initiation rite, Passover once a year. The new covenant has as its rite of initiation, baptism. You're dead, you're buried, you're raised to walk in newness of life. You are now identified in Christ. That's your initiation rite. But the other ordinance, communion, is a frequent reminder. How often? Weekly? Monthly? Quarterly? When a blood moon happens, I, that's the question that we want to wrestle with. Since the church is what it is, the new covenant community of the Spirit and not the old covenant community of the law, it seems as though we might consider a frequent demonstration of our most central identity together as a fellowship as often as possible. Which brings me to my second point. And this is ancient, and I love it, and it's good. It goes like this. Jesus died. Jesus is alive. Jesus is coming again. 
That's ancient liturgical language. Perhaps you've heard it said, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Yes, and that's the jam. And if you ever get tired of saying that, then perhaps you haven't actually ever embraced it, appropriated it, internalized it. Jesus has died. He can't, he's God, but he chose to become flesh and die. And he's alive, and he's alive forevermore, and he is coming again. It's the sum of our confession. He became human, and as a result, he was able to die. But yet he did so willfully for the sake of those that don't deserve it. And he was really dead, but now he's really been raised, and he's really alive, and he will really come again. And so we're here to proclaim that God has died, and I never have to. Oh, I might, you know, (coughs) fall over and not breathe anymore. Big whoop! That's going to be so awesome! Can you, I mean, really, can you just imagine how great it's going to be when you die? I know that sounds macabre. It isn't. It's marvelous. To finally see the one that has loved you more than you will ever understand. You'll see him. You'll smell him. You'll touch him. We don't fear death. He died. He experienced separation, a fracture in fellowship. I never, ever have to. And then when he does come or when I am dead, No more Lord's Supper. No more communion. No more Eucharist. We proclaim it until he comes again. And then it gets really real, y'all. No more little four mica chips and 10W30. Oh, no, nay, nay, little reindeer. It's the wedding feast of the lamb. It's the most amazing banquet we can ever, ever imagine forever and always in all eternity. And so for now, we have the opportunity to experience and enjoy together a shadow of that which will come. Now, we'll finally transition to the wedding feast of the Lamb and be with him forever and all eternity because we have already eaten that expression of our faith. We will live forever. Third and final point goes like this. Eat and live forever. I think sometimes it grieves me as a pastor when I see people treat communion like an irritation. And I'm guilty of it. Sometimes it's like, oh, we gotta, we got to do that again. It is the feast of the faithful. Taking in because something about us has now changed. Eating is just eating. It's just a mundane meal unless it is done because of a change in belief. I believe that Jesus did this actively in his life. I believe that Jesus completely accomplished the propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath and judgment of God in his death. I believe that. And so when I take it, I'm feasting on it like no matter what the rest of the world tells me that I'm a loser and they're right. No matter what the enemy tells me that I'm a loser and he's right. No matter how else my own conscience accuses me that I'm a loser and it's right but I feast on this and go my God my God you could not love me more than you do did we just kind of nibble on the formica chip or do we feast as the faithful this is what is most true of me and I appropriate I internalize it no it's not magic it doesn't accomplish or achieve anything for me but I believe that Jesus died that he is alive and he is coming again and so eat and live forever We get to, we don't have to, we get to be kinesthetically, viscerally, physically, experientially reminded of the spiritual reality and the physical reality of who Christ is, what he accomplished, and that he is coming again. And that's the greatest psychotherapy in the cosmos, knowing that it is historical fact, that it impacts me right now, and that my future is absolutely set. That changes everything. See, communion is the feast of the faithful. So, Communion at Bethel Bible Church, in particular the downtown campus. Well, today is July 18th. Believe it or not, we're not going to do communion after all that setup. 
There's an old adage, leave them wanting more. I want you wanting more. Lord willing, we are going to have communion on August 1st. The question that we are praying through, wrestling with as a staff, is how often do we do it? To simply say, we're going to keep doing it the way we've always done it because that's the way we've always done it seems flimsy and empty. So we're going to be charging our elders in our August elder meeting to think, discuss, pray on that. I'm going to invite and ask and beseech and beg you to pray on this. I, I know all of the objections. Believe me, I've thrown them all at our staff and our elders and our deacons. I get all the objections. I hear, if you do it every week, it becomes white noise and people stop caring. Okay, then we should also not sing songs every week or have sermons because people hear it every week and they'll stop caring. Probably. That's, that can't be the answer. Well, it's a lot of hard work. Yeah, so is sermon prep. So is playing the music that our team did this morning. So is setting up all these chairs and vacuuming and paying a light bill. I, I get there's all kinds of tactical reasons to not. But then there's Jesus. But then there's Jesus. So I, I don't know. I'm not, we don't have any sort of papal model of leadership at this campus, at this church at all. But I'm just telling you, I am beginning to have to be tenderized as my thinking is being rethunk about communion. And if it is, in fact, the Feast of the Faithful, and I contend that it is, then I think we have to ask and answer some very hard questions. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me, to think on this, to send us your feedback, your comments. Send us additional passages of Scripture, other podcasts and sermons, whatever you want. We would love to do this in a way that honors the Lord. I don't know that there's a right answer. I'm fairly certain there might be a wrong answer if we answer it for the wrong reasons. But I want this to be an us thing as we come together as we have the assembly that we would feast on our Christ. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this word. God, we pray that you would continue to impress upon us the glory, the majesty of what you've done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And you knew, you knew it way back in Genesis 3 as she reached out for that fruit you knew that it would cost your son's life. And you did it anyway. That you would redeem millions upon millions. And so God, would you call our hearts and minds and even our bodies to yourself. You are honored, you are glorified when we do so together in community. So I pray, Father, that you will give us wisdom to know what we are to do in our weekly assemblies and gatherings in this place. Father, you've told us to proclaim this, to preach the communion evangelistically until your son returns. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't invite anyone in this room or above my head on the third floor listening remotely. If you're not a believer and you're still trying to pay your own debts, I invite you to believe, to step out of death into life and to believe, to place all your weight on the truth that Jesus paid it all and God's not angry. He loves you. He wants relationship with you. If that's you and you've believed perhaps for the first time today, I invite you to speak with me, one of our staff, one of our elders, someone else that you love and know and trust. Father, would you continue to lead us forward, have your way with us. We pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.